Greetings, everyone. Greetings and welcome to the Cato Institute's live online policy forum. I'm Dan Eikenson. I'm director of the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. I'll be the moderator of today's discussion. The topic of this discussion today is the future of the World Trade Organization. Of course, what the future may hold for the WTO is very much an open-ended question. Uh, perhaps the only certainty is that this year there will be a new director general selected. But what mammoth tasks await her or him? Even before the Trump administration's actions to render the appellate body defunct and its objections to how dispute settlement works and how the system cannot handle the anomaly of China's large state-centric economy uh, and how it is wrong that advanced economy members can self-declare as developing countries and delay or avoid implementing certain commitments, there were already some very serious problems besetting the WTO. Most notably, multilateral trade liberalization has been all but totally elusive throughout the 25-year history of the WTO. The ill-fated Doha round was launched in the seventh year of the WTO, and it stands as the only multilateral trade round ever to end in failure. Now, some diehards will say it hasn't failed, not that it didn't fail, but that it hasn't failed in the present tense. Others will point to the trade facilitation agreement, which was rescued from the Doha round and serves as the only example of a multilateral agreement reached under the WTO uh, as, as, as a positive point. But a more realistic interpretation, not to dismiss the efforts and accomplishments of the, of the TFA, is that the trade facilitation agreement heralded the end of the concept of a single undertaking in a multilateral negotiation. The TFA was supposed to be a part of a bigger package where nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. That the TFA was pulled from the failure of the single undertaking and that some members put forth efforts to rescue other elements of the Doha agenda, such as the services negotiations through TISA and to try other plurilateral endeavors, such as the environmental goods agreement and the digital trade agreement, to my mind at least, is fairly strong evidence that multilateralism as a negotiating strategy or objective is over. If there, are, if there are going to be multilateral trade agreements in the future, they will likely have to be achieved piecemeal as plurilateral agreements that eventually attract a critical mass of accessions. Of course, that could happen within the WTO structure. So, so those are my two cents for the event. Momentarily, I will turn the podium over to my colleagues who have written and spoken extensively about WTO issues since it became obvious a couple of years ago uh, that the WTO was facing a, a crisis. Uh, they will address an array of issues and try to fill in some blanks, connect some dots, and maybe look into their crystal balls to help us better understand what the future may hold. Now, rather than introduce each of my colleagues with their full bios in the interest of time, and, and, and since most of you know who they are, I will give a shortened introduction and refer you to their bio pages on the, on the Cato website. First, Jim Backus uh, is an adjunct scholar with the Cato Institute. He's a professor of global affairs and director of the Center for Global Economic and Environmental Opportunity at the University of Central Florida. He was a WTO appellate body member. In fact, he was the first chief judge of the appellate body. Uh, he's also a former U.S. congressman from Florida and a former U.S. trade negotiator. Simon Lester is the associate director of the, K of K the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. His research focuses on WTO disputes, regional trade agreements, disguised protectionism, and the history of international trade law. Inu Manik is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. She is an expert in international political economy uh, with a specialization in international trade policy and law. Dr. Monick's research focuses on the World Trade Organization, non-judicial treaty mechanisms, technical barriers to trade, regional trade agreements, and development. 
And to remind you or just give you a better sense of the WTO-oriented work of our panelists, the following six papers are among the publications Cato has published over the past two years. Uh, in May 2018, we published a paper, Was Buenos Aires the Beginning of the End or the End of the Beginning? The Future of the World Trade Organization. That was by Jim Bacchus. Uh, in November 2018, Disciplining China's Trade Practices at the WTO, How WTO Complaints Can Help Make China More Market-Oriented by Jim Bacchus, Simon Lester, and Wan Zhou. In June 2019, Closing Pandora's Box, The Growing Abuse of the National Security Rationale for Restricting Trade. Uh, that was by uh, Simon Lester and, um, and, and Wan Zhou. Um, the, in, in 2019, Trade Justice Delayed uh, is Trade Justice Denied, How to Make WTO Dispute Settlement Faster and More Effective by Jim Backus and Simon Lester. And in April 2020, the development dimension, what to do about differential trade in trade, in, in, differential treatment in trade by, by Jim Backus and Enu Manik. I'll also quickly note that we four have shared the podium to discuss WTO issues on, the, on three other occasions since the WTO crisis emerged. So today's event, the future of the World Trade Organization is sort of an exercise in uh, getting the band back together, but, but without our colleague Juan Zhou, who was on our panel at the WTO Public Forum last October. Finally, some housekeeping notes. After the discussion, there'll be time for Q&A. Please don't be shy. You may submit your questions anytime during the event via this webpage or Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And when you do, please remember to use the hashtag CatoTrade, one word. Also, please visit Cato's event page uh, to find additional materials associated with this, web, with this webcast. So with that background, I'm going to turn it over to Jim Backus now, whose picture you see, you don't see him live, maybe before the end of this uh, event, uh, we'll, we'll get that straightened out. But Jim, over to you. Thank you, Dan, and thank you all. Uh, my apologies for the fact that you're looking at uh, my photo and not at me. Um, evidently, I'm a victim not only of the pandemic, but the tech-demic involving my laptop computer. Um, but I am happy to be with you, and of course, uh, I take bright, great pride in being affiliated with Cato, which does such wonderful work um, on trade and on so much else. Uh, Dan has asked me to talk primarily about the uh, upcoming selection of a new director general for the WTO. This is, of course, uh, a very important appointment. Uh, it is supposed to happen by September 1. My guess is that the final selection may be delayed uh, sometime beyond that. We shall see how long it takes to reach a consensus. At the last count, I think there were eight candidates from a variety of countries and continents who had been nominated. They have also a variety of backgrounds and expertise. Uh, I'm uh, not of a mind to handicap the candidates or make any predictions about who will ultimately prevail. I'll simply say that uh, uh, whoever prevails, it's going to be a tough job to do that job. I think it's important for everyone to realize uh, in looking at the uh, DG selection process that um, no matter who becomes director general, uh, the director general is not on their own going to transform the WTO, modernize the WTO, and solve all the challenges 
facing the WTO. Uh, as everyone within the trading system says, uh, ritually, uh, uh, very often, uh, the WTO is a member-driven institution. If we think the WTO has fallen short in doing all that uh, it should have done by now in trade, then the fault lies not with anyone who served as director general. It lies with the members themselves. It lies with uh, their failure to find the political will to come together uh, in a consensus to move forward. Um, we have at this uh, turning point in the history of the WTO um, a great many agenda items and a great many items that should be on the agenda but are not. As Dan mentioned, we have failed to move forward on the traditional agenda of the WTO, uh, mainly uh, eliminating remaining tariff and non-tariff barriers to trade and manufactured goods, and also eliminating agricultural subsidies, which at last count added up to about $300 billion worldwide. Um, certainly, the agricultural subsidies are an issue that can only be resolved multilaterally. Um, no one's going to eliminate their subsidies unless everyone does. But we did not succeed in doing very much about that during the Doha development round. We have done something about uh, reducing agricultural export subsidies, which is good, but not nearly enough. And then there's what used to be called the new agenda. Uh, that was 20 years ago. Uh, what's usually called now the 21st century agenda. Now, this is a long list of all the things that are now commonplace in world commerce that are not really dealt with under, under WTO rules. At the top of the list, uh, as Dan has already mentioned, is digital trade. How can we say we truly have a modern uh, trading system if we don't have rules for digital trade? And then there are other issues as well. We uh, have made a start on trade and services, uh, which is 75% of the American economy. It's 90% of the economy in my home state of Florida, uh, from which I'm speaking now. Uh, but we haven't done anything really uh, in services since 1995 when we concluded the services agreement. Um, there are a couple of protocols, but that's about it. And then there's the issue of competition policy, what we Americans call antitrust policy. Uh, we have rules on trade remedies, and I suppose that's a form of a competition policy. But uh, at this point, many of the uh, more complicated issues of mutual concern in international trade deal with the terms of competition, such as uh, with state-owned enterprises. Uh, we need rules on that, and uh, we don't have them. That's not really even on uh, the agenda. We have a limited agreement on trade-related aspects of um, intellectual property rights. Uh, I think it's been an effective uh, agreement. Um, but uh, we haven't really explored all that it could do, and uh, there's much more that we could do to protect international intellectual property rights and also make certain that we have 
the uh, technology transfers that developing countries have been promised already in the rules, but have never gotten. Uh, we have um, uh, an agreement on trade-related investment measures, but there's so much about investment that's not addressed in global rules, and yet investment is the flip side of the coin of trade. Uh, so there's much we could and should be doing to bring our WTO rules into the 21st century. And then beyond that, the um, WTO treaty in its very first page promises that uh, WTO members will pursue, and here I quote, uh, trade and economic endeavor consistently with the objectives of sustainable development. I would argue that they have not pursued those objectives inconsistently with sustainable development, and yet very little attention has been paid in WTO negotiations to trying to do the affirmative things that are needed to um, make certain that trade uh, assists in the uh, sustainable development uh, goals and their achievement um, as part of the overall um, institutional apparatus of global governance. And then lastly, we have this situation uh, we face now as a world, a pandemic, uh, uh, this new novel coronavirus, COVID-19. And, and we've seen that this has raised some specific uh, trade issues relating to public health. This certainly is something we need to be doing more about and now. Well, whoever becomes director general is not going to solve all those issues. Uh, the role of the director general is not to uh, negotiate trade agreements. The role of the director general is to be an honest broker in assisting the WTO members, however uh, they can, in trying themselves to reach a consensus uh, on uh, new rules and revised rules to deal with uh, all aspects of global commerce. That's the key role for a director general, and I hope that the members will keep that in mind in the selection process. The other uh, principal role of a director general is to be a cheerleader for trade and especially for multilateralism and trade and especially for lowering the remaining barriers to trade. Uh, this is a nimble task. Uh, the DG cannot get too far out ahead of the members uh, when uh, out on the stump uh, uh, making the case for the WTO and for trade, uh, but they can point the way forward uh, and uh, they can be, I think, a little bit more bold in doing so than uh, some of those who served as DG have, have done sometimes in the past. Um, Lastly, uh, I'd want to point out uh, the uh, history of something uh, that Dan mentioned, but didn't have the time to go to into great depth. Uh, he knows what I'm about to say as well as I do. Uh, I think the way forward toward more multilateralism on many issues is by beginning with pluralateralism that builds into multilateralism. In other words, start with agreements among some of the WTO members 
and uh, then over time build those agreements uh, into fully global agreements among all WTO members. Uh, this is permitted under the current rules, and it has been tried on several occasions, uh, such as with information technology, and it has worked. The point I would like to make uh, historically is that this, in fact, is how we ended up with many of the agreements that are, are part of the WTO treaty, the anti-dumping agreement, uh, the subsidies agreement. Uh, the agreement on technical barriers to trade. These and more were all uh, plurilateral agreements, agreements among some but not all of uh, the negotiating countries. Uh, in the Tokyo round uh, back in the 1970s, uh, and then over time, more and more countries joined these agreements, and in the Uruguay round uh, that established the WTO, they became fully multilateral agreements, uh, so that moving forward plurilaterally as permitted in the WTO treaty is uh, a very uh, practical way of trying to move together multilaterally. I'll stop here, Dan, and I'll be happy to answer questions toward the end if anyone has any uh, questions for me. Thank you so much. Excellent, Jim. There are some questions uh, coming up in the in the queue, but let's let's uh, uh, let's go to Simon first. I think Simon's presentation will probably address some of those questions because I think Simon's going to speak a little bit about dispute settlement and alternative dispute settlement. And I'm turning it over to Simon right now. Thank you, Dan. Um, well, as uh, my colleagues Dan and Jim, uh, their presentations have already indicated, I think the WTO is a number of things. It's uh, it's an institution, an actual building over there in Geneva with a few hundred people working in it, hopefully a new director general in the coming months. It's a negotiating forum. Uh, maybe it hasn't worked that well over the past few years, but people are, are still trying. They're still over there negotiating. And it's also a set of rules to follow. Uh, so for example, you have rules on non-discrimination. You, know, you can't use dom domestic taxes and regulations to discriminate against foreign products. There are procedures to follow if you want to impose anti-dumping duties. Your food safety regulations have to be based on science. And one way to make sure the, these rules are followed is through information sharing, discussion, naming and shaming. And this is what my, my colleague Inu is going to talk about in a few minutes. Another is through litigation. Uh, it's obligatory for me at this point to say litigation is a last resort. Uh, but governments ha have taken it 596 times since 1995 with hundreds of dispute settlement decisions. So we get to that last resort somewhat regularly. Uh, under the GATT, the WTO's predecessor organization, we, we had litigation, uh, but there was a political safety valve so big that the system became to some extent unworkable. Um, a government that was the, the subject of a complaint who lost could block the adoption of the report, uh, meaning it had no legal effect. That's a pretty big loophole. When the WTO was created, the governments decided to, to close this loophole and adoption was now uh, automatic, effectively speaking. It's a little more complicated than that, but for our purposes, adoption is, is, is automatic. Uh, decisions will have legal effect. To deal with a concern about poorly reasoned panel reports uh, being adopted, governments created uh, a right to an appeal. 
and an appellate body to hear those appeals. And since 1995, the appellate body issued 148 reports. Uh, so it was quite busy, but now it is no longer functioning. Short version of this is the United States uh, had some objections to the appellate body, procedural objections, substantive objections. And as the, the terms of the appellate body members, the, the judges expired, the U.S. did not allow appointment of replacements. We're down to one appellate body member. You need three to hear a case. That leaves us with a right to an appeal and no appellate body. And uh, what that means is the losing party can now appeal into the void, as, as people are calling it, and effectively block the adoption of the court. So it has, so it has no legal effect. So what does this mean uh, for the system? Does WTO dispute settlement work right now? Can the rules be enforced? And if not, you know, is the WTO lost relevance in trade policy? Yes, there are hundreds of FTAs out there, uh, but people go to the WTO for, for their complaints on non-discrimination, on, on anti-dumping. FTAs haven't and probably won't work for a, a lot of this. Uh, you know, for example, anti-dumping, FTAs just don't really have those rules. So, so if governments can't go to the WTO to enforce the rules, does the, straight, does the trading system still mean anything? There are 11 previously filed appeals sitting out there. There are close to 30 panel reports uh, coming up where decisions will, be ha will have to be made uh, about adoption or appeal. What happens to all of that? So one option is that governments can agree, you know, we just won't appeal. We'll, we'll sign a non-appeal pact. We'll just accept the panel report. We'll forgo the appeal. We'll allow it to be adopted. And uh, there are a couple cases where, where governments have said, well, that's what we're going to do. Um, and I think this can work in some cases, um, but, but what if we get in the situation where one panel says non-discrimination means X, another panel says non-discrimination means Y, uh, you end up with an, an incoherence in, in the, the jurisprudence um, where we're not even sure what the rules mean, and that makes them, I think, difficult to enforce. But then there's also this bigger project going on, the, the multi-party interim appeal arbitration arrangement. That's a mouthful. Uh, we're going to call it the MPIA for, from now, from here on out. This is an EU-led group of 22 parties. So far, 22 have signed up using the general DSU Article 25 arbitration provision to act as a, an alternative appeal mechanism. Will this work? Uh, maybe, but there are a, a lot of questions, and I'll, I'll raise a few of them. Uh, the first is, who are the arbitrators going to be? Uh, so far, we've heard publicly, or I've heard publicly, three names. Uh, people have been nominated. We've had Joost Powellen, Penelope Ridings, Thomas Cotier. These are, are excellent names. These are all people with extensive experience in WTO dispute settlement. The aim is to have 10 chosen, I, I think, by July 30th. Sometimes these deadlines slip, but, but it, I, I think that the parties are working behind the scenes to get a group of arbitrators together. Uh, second question is, who will assist them? The role of law clerks is not often talked about, uh, um, but it, it has been a controversial aspect of the, the appellate body. Uh, there was an appellate body secretary to, to assist with the, the appellate body judges. The United States has, has made it clear, though, that it objects to WTO secretariat assistance to the MPIA, um, which kind of leads me to my next question, is, which is where is the money going to come from for, for this MPIA? It doesn't seem likely that the US will allow the, the WTO budget to pay for it. So the parties to the MPIA may have to come up with the, the funds themselves. But that may not be too much of a burden because my next question is, how many cases will the MPIA hear? And the answer is uh, maybe not that many. Um, there, there aren't that many cases going on between the, these 22 parties. 
so far, there have been formal announcements in four cases uh, that the MPI will be used if necessary. But that's that's not a whole lot, uh, and so th that makes the funding problem um, less of an issue. But it also might make the impact of the MPI less of an issue. It's just not available for most cases. And then finally, what kind of decisions will the MPIA issue? Will it be like the appellate body reports that that we're all used to, or will it be something entirely different or, or somewhat different? And this last question is why I, I confess I'm, I'm a little excited about the MPIA. I'm just eager to see what they do. Um, I mean, it won't come as any surprise to people who, who follow me, who know me. I, I don't agree with the U.S. blocking of the appellate body appointments, but I do think some problems develop, developed with the appellate body over the years. So, for example, the appellate body set what, what I thought was a, a low standard for appeals of, of factual issues, and, and that was part of what led to appellate body reports becoming uh, a bit longer than they might have needed to be and, and maybe difficult to, to, to comprehend. Um, the MPIA can serve as a corrective to this. It, it gives the appellate review process a fresh set of eyes. Let, let's see what somebody else does with this. Ideally, in my view, the appellate body itself will be restored, but, but hopefully we can make it more durable this time. And I think the MPIA um, can, can help with that. Uh, I was not there at the creation of the, the uh, appellate body, but everyone who was seems to agree that the appellate body role was supposed to be limited. The details weren't really fleshed out uh, in the rules though. Well, here's our chance to think about exactly what role we want appellate review to play and flesh out those details, taking into account 25 years of experience with the appellate body. So let me close by, by taking us back to the, the big picture. Uh, the goal here is to preserve a, a, a carefully balanced enforceable but flexible WTO dispute settlement system to make sure that the, the rules mean something. We need some way to ensure that dispute uh, settlement decisions actually have legal effect. Now, we know that, you know, realistically, uh, governments can ignore decisions and can accept retaliation or, or rebalancing. But, but nevertheless, we want to at least have, we want to have some degree of enforceability and legal effect, I think, is crucial for this. The GATT turned out to be too flexible. The WTO dispute settlement, I think, was pretty good. It got the right, got the right balance, but nevertheless, uh, we're being forced to reevaluate it. So, so let's do that. And in the spirit of making lemonade out of lemons, uh, let's take this opportunity um, to, to think about what appellate review should be, and maybe we can come out of this with an improved dispute settlement system that offers a reasonable degree uh, of compliance and gives us with, it leaves us with rules uh, that actually mean something. Well, thank you, Simon. I, I think in your presentation, you, you addressed a question raised by Luis Peraza about the, the future of WTO uh, arbitration. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, let's turn to Inu and see what she has to say about committee work and other things that are actually going on at the WTO right now. And then we'll get to uh, as many questions as we can. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about is the other part of the WTO, which is not related to dispute settlement. So while enforcement uh, of the WTO tends to get the most media attention, there is a lot more that the World Trade Organization does on a day-to-day -day basis that helps the rules-based international trading system function smoothly. A big part of this is the monitoring function of the WTO. Uh, and in general, there are about two major monitoring functions, if we could describe them in that way. So first is the institutional review mechanism 
So that's like uh, the WTO gathering data and, and making reports on its members' trade policies. But there's also a peer review mechanism uh, where states monitor one another's actions and hold each other to account short of filing a dispute. Unlike other aspects of the WTO that have faced quite a bit of scrutiny in the last few years, uh, these functions have actually been spared uh, from similar attacks. And in general, they're deemed a valuable feature that should continue in their current form going forward. So let's talk a little bit about some of these. Um, so first, the trade monitoring reports. The Secretariat produces regular trade monitoring reports and has done so since 2009 following the financial crisis. Uh, sometimes these reports are co-authored by the OECD or UNCTAD as well. Now, the most recent of these reports uh, focused on rising trade restrictions by the G20 economies in light of the pandemic. Now, the Secretariat also produces uh, informational notes to provide relevant and up-to-date information uh, and statistics on many trade policy measures that members are taking. This recently included an informational note on trade in medical goods in the context of tackling COVID-19. Uh, these informational notes are incredibly helpful uh, to just setting some facts aside uh, so people can have a common base from which to evaluate certain policy choices. Now, in addition to this is the trade policy review mechanism. Now, the purpose of the trade policy review mechanism is really to contribute to improved adherence by all members to the rules, disciplines, and commitments that they have signed up for. Now, you can think of this more like an impartial assessment of individual members' trade policies and practices and their impact on the functioning of the multilateral trading system. Now, members are reviewed regularly uh, based on their share of world trade every three, five, and seven years with the top four markets reviewed uh, the most. And the most uh, recent ones uh, that are the fourth top four markets are the EU, the US, Japan, and China. Now, this fulfills a really important obligation uh, by WTO members, which is transparency, and allows other members to know about where some countries may be struggling to implement their commitments. Uh, thus, it can help foster dialogue about potential shared problems and also provide businesses with information about individual member trade policies. Now, in addition to this institutional function, there is the peer review function, and, and these can be found in many committees, councils, and working groups that the WTO has established. Now, these uh, systems are basically made up of representatives from all WTO members that can openly discuss trade policy concerns that one or more members have with others. Uh, it's really a really effective way of facilitating dialogue between members to address trade measures uh, that have been taken uh, by one member, and sometimes this takes the form of what are called specific trade concerns. Uh, these are essentially concerns raised by one or more members to another on a specific measure that a member is taking or intending to take. Um, they have to provide then an explanation or response uh, to the question that's raised in committee. Uh, this dialogue is a really effective uh, in trying to facilitate a solution to a problem before it becomes a dispute. Now, the technical barriers to trade committee uh, is often pointed to as a standout of the committees where 23 new concerns on average are raised uh, every year in addition to recurrence past concerns. Now, the TBT committee has not only crafted a clear working procedure for how to use this mechanism, but also has provided important thematic discussions on common issues that many members face, such as, for example, transparency uh, in domestic regulatory processes. So, for example, having an open notice and comment period. 
Now, if we look at recently what the committee has done, uh, in February of this year, the TBT committee held a thematic session on medical devices and also on autonomous vehicles, where a number of members made presentations on current and developing international standards and practices to avoid future regulatory barriers uh, in these emerging product areas. And a new STC was also raised against Colombia in a recent uh, e-agenda, so it was a completely online meeting that they had, which regards a new regulation on energy efficiency labeling for air conditioners and the United States and Korea both raised a concern on the measure because of the administrative burden in implementing it, along with asking for more information on when the regulation would go into effect, as many things are currently delayed uh, because of the pandemic. So essentially what the committee uh, platform allows is for issues to be discussed before they become trade barriers. So this really helps facilitate the flow of trade. Now, notably, the TBT committee has continued to function during the pandemic and even managed to hold a meeting uh, through asking members to submit written concerns and responses in a sort of an online uh, notice board type setup. So this was uh, the first time they did it and it seemed to work really well. Now, being able to do this is important uh, to maintaining this function and keeping members engaged. In fact, uh, using their new online procedure for submitting STCs, the TBT committee actually had a record number of concerns raised for a single meeting this May, with 72 total concerns, 21 of which were new. Now, if we are to look ahead uh, to think about what can be done to improve uh, the committee work, there are, there are some aspects that actually could be uh, improved upon, and, and I'll touch upon a couple of them here. Um, one is important to realize that the, the pillar of the committee work is really the notification system. So whereby members voluntarily notify measures that they are taking that may have an impact on trade. The United States uh, and a number of other countries have taken issue with the fact that many members do not notify measures on time or at all, and that procedures should be put in place to strengthen these commitments. So in 2017, uh, the US actually put forward a proposal on this. And in March of this year, it was joined by nine other members in calling for penalties for failures to notify. I think that this proposal really should be discussed among the membership uh, and a solution to persistent notification problems really needs to be addressed uh, for the continued success of the committees. Uh, now, the committees should also assess their experience during the current pandemic and look for practical solutions to ensure continuity of work amid similar crises, which we are undoubtedly going to face. Uh, this should include expanding online meetings, for example. And we've struggled with this in negotiations, but in the committee work, we've managed to have some sort of engagement continue. Now, this should really be considered to be carried over into normal times as well. Because uh, when you think about it, there are many smaller countries that are part of the WTO. They don't often have permanent missions in Geneva, or they can't afford to send a delegate from the capital uh, to Geneva. Anyone who's been to Geneva for 24 hours knows it's quite expensive. Uh, and you know this would really make the engagement a little bit more inclusive. So finally, WHO members should also consider establishing a, a committee on national security. This is something that my colleague Simon Lester and I have recently proposed uh, to really address the challenge of growing measures that are put in place for national security reasons. Now, the WHO was quick to put into place the COVID-19 related measure notification system, um, but even issues like these could theoretically be discussed under the purview of a national security committee. Uh, this would also allow for a continued dialogue on issues such as the Trump administration's Section 
232 tariffs. Uh, and quickly, uh, just to conclude, some important takeaways from the discussion on committees and, and working groups. You know, the work of the WTO goes far beyond dispute settlement, and it's this regular day-to-day -day work that much of the trading system depends on. And it's important to keep this in mind amidst calls to withdraw from the WTO because the benefits of engaging with our trading partners is not always visible because this more routine interaction almost never makes a nightly news or is ever talked about by politicians and pundits. And the fact that these monitoring functions have continued despite the pandemic also shows how vital they are. And data that has been provided on COVID-19 measures has been especially helpful in painting a clear picture of how different countries are responding to the pandemic. So it's this type of continued transparency that can help facilitate the resolution of trade fictions and sharing of best practices to our common trade policy problems. And there are some minor improvements that could be made, but overall, I would say that the committees are an example of where the WTO has really delivered for its members. Uh, I can take questions later uh, on this uh, as they arise. Thanks, Dan. Thank, thank you, Inu. And uh, you know, thanks for sharing with us the good work that the WTO is doing, it, it just happens to be a human trait that uh, media like to focus on uh, things when they're going awry rather than focusing on the things things that are good. But, but since you're all warmed up and sort of on a roll and since you cover digital trade issues, uh, I, I, I wanted to raise a question uh, or convey a question from Luke Ewing who asked via Facebook uh, about digital trade. He, he wants to know what barriers do you think would need to be addressed by the rules on digital trade that you said need to be worked out? Clearly, uh, it, there's, there's no agreement on digital trade. Uh, it's been many years since there have been any new agreements. What what should be included in a digital uh, digital trade agreement and, and what's the status of those negotiations that were underway? Yeah, so the digital trade uh, talks at the WTO have been stalled, like most negotiations there right now. Uh, and this is something that really should be resolved or work to be resolved by the next DG uh, that does take over from Azevedo. And I think that uh, it's really important that whatever we do in digital trade, it should be a comprehensive agreement. Now, right now, there is a bit of uh, a divide among the membership onto how compre comprehensive it should be, with the US trying to, to push for something similar to what we see in USMCA um, and others uh, having some concerns about what those provisions would entail for, for them domestically. Uh, and there are some domestic practices on, on privacy uh, that are of concern to some members as well. Um, and so I think that at the end of the day, there's going to have to be some major compromises. And for this to be effective, we can't just have uh, a trade facilitation uh, agreement such as like on digital signatures or, or things like this. It, it can't be so, um, you know, bare bones. You can't go after low hanging fruit. For this to work, uh, we really need a, a really big uh, agreement and a big compromise among all the membership. Uh, unless Simon or Jim have anything to add to that, I have a question for Jim from Anonymous. But it's a it's an excellent question that uh, that we, that's been that we've uh, tossed around many times. And, and the question is. As a former chairman of the appellate body, are you in agreement with the official U.S. position that it has, that the appellate body has gone beyond its jurisdiction and has made law that members did not anticipate it and anticipate? Is, has there been overreach? No. 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 <laughs> That's my view. Uh, and I don't mind uh, answering anonymous questions 
I used to be in politics. The um, United States is basically accusing the appellate body of doing its job. And I don't argue that the uh, appellate body in doing its job has always been perfect. I would argue it has come closer to perfection than, say, the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, but any human endeavor is going to fall short of uh, the ideal. But in doing its job, uh, the appellate body has incurred the political wrath of the United States, primarily because the United States has routinely refused to comply to the fullest extent with the WTO rules on trade remedies that the United States led the way in writing 25 years ago. Uh, the appellate body is required to hear an appeal when it's made. It has no discretion to deny the right to an appeal. The appellate body is required to address every issue that's raised on appeal. Uh, it, it cannot refuse to answer uh, a legal question that's raised on appeal. And the appellate body is required to use a certain means of interpretation in uh, trying to clarify the WTO obligations that are at issue in claims made on appeal. This uh, means of interpretation is uh, the Vienna approach and the jargon, but uh, it, it is the customary rules of public international law uh, that are reflected in the Vienna Convention. These rules require that uh, those who uh, try to clarify uh, obligations do so by uh, looking uh, at the ordinary meaning of the words uh, in the text, in their context within the text, and in the light of the object and purpose of those words as reflected in the text. It's a textual approach. The appellate body has no discretion to say, well, this is ambiguous. Um, the appellate body has no discretion to say, well, this is the wrong rule. Uh, the appellate body is required to uphold the rules as they are and to find their ordinary meaning. Uh, this is a singular meaning uh, that uh, they're required to find. And in doing so, the United States has uh, found uh, on any number of occasions that uh, the United States has acted inconsistently with its obligations, primarily in trade remedies cases. And because those cases are so politically sensitive uh, in the United States with both parties, and that's the source of the claim that the appellate body is engaging in overreach. It is not. Again, there are instances in which the appellate body uh, may have been too wordy. Uh, there are probably a few times uh, when they may have gotten things wrong, although I don't think they have done so in any of the trade remedies uh, disputes. Uh, the appellate body, uh, uh, my successors, uh, have enough critics in the world without uh, me joining the list, so I'll let others say what they think the mistakes have been. Uh, but for the most part, I would say the appellate body uh, is rightly judged as the uh, uh, the best and the fairest international tribunal in the history of the world. And it is a sad testimony to where we are uh, internationally now that uh, uh, someone like Donald Trump and his minions uh, should be able to dismantle this great historic achievement. So, so you think this dissent, uh, this charge against the appellate body is driven primarily by 
the, this broad bipartisan support for, for anti-dumping and trade remedies in the United States that, that U.S. policymakers will protect uh, those channels at, at all costs. Well, I think it's important to point out to those who, uh, uh, among our listeners who may not follow this all the time that the WTO has 164 members. One member has made these charges against the appellate body. And uh, there are a few others that uh, grumble whenever they lose a case. And uh, there are all kinds of theorists who uh, would like to be on the appellate body themselves, who uh, uh, question how the appellate body has done this or that along the way. And maybe they're right and maybe they're not. But this is something that has arisen almost entirely uh, because of uh, the political stakes in the United States. The, the trade remedies uh, that are applied, anti-dumping duties, uh, countervailing duties, safeguards, are most likely to be applied uh, relating to industries and workers in the uh, uh, border states that uh, determine the outcome of, uh, of presidential elections and that uh, determine whether one party or not uh, controls the House or the Senate. So both parties are interested in this, and uh, there's every reason uh, for them to want to give uh, U.S. administrative agencies uh, all the latitude they wish to apply these trade remedies. And, and these agencies largely do. The United States applies hundreds, thousands of these trade remedies, uh, and it has the right to do so, but it's required to do so according to certain procedures that are set out in the WTO agreement. And when it does not follow those procedures, it is going to lose uh, in litigation in the WTO. That's what happened. A last point, I think it's important to point out that contrary to what uh, President Trump has said, the United States has not lost all the cases in the WTO. In fact, when the United States has been the plaintiff in cases, when it's brought cases to the WTO, it's it's one almost all the time. Uh, Dan, I think your last count was 87.5%, uh, which is uh, the like highest that. percentage of victories of any major player in WTO dispute settlement. Uh, look, I'm a reformed politician, uh, and uh, I have no doubt that this is all ultimately about politics. And in terms of uh, what we've heard about the appellate body, these accusations, they're just one more example for the most part uh, of the big lie technique that's become so familiar in the United States during the past few years. Right. Well, thanks, Jim. C certainly, there's a there's a pro uh, petitioner, a pro complainant bias, which is not really a bias. It's just that complainants bring cases uh, when they're pretty sure they're going to win, and so the United States brings cases. It wins most of the time. When it's defending its practices, it it loses most of the time, and that's the case throughout. By the way, I have a paper out today, a new paper on anti-dumping. Just to just it's, it's it's been taken to just a new level of uh, of ridiculousness. <laughs> and so, if you have a chance, take take a look at that. But let let, let me pivot to you, Simon, hard to uh, believe, because yeah. you've written quite. <laughs> yeah, uh, Simon, let me pivot to you about um, national security. Uh, you 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 and Juan have written paper uh, about Section Two Thirty Two of the Trade Expansion Act of nineteen. 62 and uh, and uh, uh, Article uh, 21 in the GATT. And there's a question from uh, Paul Linthorst. 
He says, do the WTO rules address in any way national security concerns as valid arguments to restrain trade in certain goods and services? Now, you've done a lot in this. Jim just had a, a, an op-ed a couple days ago talking about two WTO panel decisions on national security issues. Simon, why don't you take a stab at that question, though? Yeah, so thanks, Dan. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, the WTO does have very specific rules on this exact issue. So in the, the Trade and Goods Agreement and the Trade and Services Agreement and the Intellectual Property Agreement, uh, you know, there, there's a national security e exception in there. And so for, for decades, uh, governments were reluctant to, to litigate uh, about this provision. And, you know, somebody would take a measure and, and assert national security and they, they would talk about it, uh, governments would talk about it, but they, they would find ways to avoid litigating it. Um, but over the past couple of years, we've seen some, some litigation arise. And so we have uh, a, a case brought by Ukraine against Russia. Um, and we have a case uh, brought by uh, Qatar against Saudi Arabia where, where panels have issued uh, reports. Um, one, the, the Saudi Arabia one just came out you know, just recently uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, uh, the, the Russia one, um, I think 2019. And so those panels have now elaborated on exactly what the rules say. And so, you know, before the panels came out, we kind of knew just based on the specific language there that these exceptions were pretty broad. Uh, you know, they, they gave a lot of flexibility to governments to act the way they wanted. Uh, the, the, the position of the United States is uh, they give unlimited discretion. Like you can't even litigate it. You have the, the WTO dispute settlement you know, bodies, the, the panels, the appellate body don't have jurisdiction to even look at this. Um, and so that was the argument that the U.S. sort of offered as a third party in those cases and, and in the Section 232 cases that you, um, you referred to the U.S. Section 232 tariffs. Those are also being litigated. We don't have panel decisions on those yet. Uh, so the, the panels who heard these two uh, cases who issued the two reports looked at this question and said, well, it's not unlimited discretion, but it's a fair amount of discretion. We're not going to look as closely, uh, give as much scrutiny to national security measures, measures for which national security has been asserted, as we would say for an environmental protection measure or a public morals measure. And they tried to come up with a sort of like just really thread the needle and give just the, the, the right amount of discretion here. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I have no objection to the, the, the panel's uh, reasoning here. I, I think they did get the balance pretty much right. So what we have right now is these two panels of issued reports. But as you heard earlier, there's no appellate body right now. So we do have a bit of uncertainty as to what the eventual uh, rule will be, the, the balance will be. Um, we have panels here in the Section 232 cases. What will they say about all this? And will we ever get uh, an appellate body or an MPIA decision that sort of weighs in from above, gives the authoritative, here's where we think the, the balance is. And so, so yeah, so, the, so there are rules. They give a lot of discretion. Um, we've started to have some litigation. My view on this, and so, you know, Ian refer, referred to our paper talking about National Security Committee. My view on this is that litigation can't do much to solve issues where somebody is asserting national security and so it would be better to, to, to push those disputes elsewhere, uh, you know, have them put them into a negotiating forum, a discussion forum of some sort, because a panel can rule on this. Uh, but if a government has asserted national security, even if it's found in violation, despite all the discretion it has under this, this broad exception, it's probably not going to comply. I mean, to me, the, the, the decision to assert national security is kind of a statement saying, yeah, we're not going to comply. Uh, so, so I think we're, we're better off just pushing these to a, a negotiating forum where we can rebalance concessions maybe 
Um, but yeah, I, I think there are limits to there are limits to litigation in general, and I think in particular here there are limits to what the, the litigation process can do. Although it is, a, it is a lot of fun for us lawyers to read the report, so you know for, for that reason I encourage countries to keep bringing them. Uh, but 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 you know realistically, no, I I, I think that there are you know, there, there are limits to to what the dispute settlement system can do about this issue. Thank you, thanks, Simon. J Jim, let me expand on that question a little bit. Uh, by way of a question posed by Roberto Zapata, uh, who says, if current challenges of the WTO are somehow of a geopolitical nature, such as data flow, national security, non-market economy, the ability to discriminate along with other longstanding issues, such as all areas of subsidies, how can members agree on a common purpose for a WTO of the future? So this is kind of the crux of, of our discussion. You know, what how do we go forward with all these differences? Well, first of all, hello, Roberto. <laughs> uh, but uh, beyond that, uh, let me say that assuming we do all that I believe and many others uh, believe must be done to modernize the WTO, we will still be dealing in the WTO with difficult political and commercial issues. The WTO is uh, not a plan for creating utopia. The WTO is a framework uh, for ne negotiating rules to smooth and trade and for resolving disputes about trade and also for dealing with cutting edge issues that relate to trade. I, I was in the Congress when we concluded the Uruguay round, and um, most of us who supported at that time thought it would be the last round. We envisaged the um, WTO as an ongoing place for negotiation of new issues uh, and resolution of new concerns as they arose. Um, and, and that's where we need to go with some of these naughtier issues, uh, these intractable issues. Uh, we've never really had a discussion in negotiations about national security and where we draw the line on that, not since the Havana Conference in 1947. Uh, for many decades, uh, countries were reluctant to raise these defenses because they knew the kinds of uh, results they would get geopolitically. Uh, better not to have such cases. Uh, on subsidies, this is an issue with which the system simply must grapple. And may I say that in addition to all the problems we had uh, before the pandemic with agricultural subsidies and all kinds of industrial uh, subsidies and their proliferation in recent years, we're now going to have many, many more problems in addressing subsidies because uh, a lot of this deficit spending that's happening all over the world has been in the form of subsidies for various enterprises uh, that on their face are illegal under uh, uh, WTO rules, but should they be? That's a discussion that needs to be uh, taking place in the WTO. So uh, I, I think that bringing the WTO uh, into the 21st century and, and uh, beginning to deal with the issues that will continue to be unfolding in the 21st century, whether it's a pandemic uh, or uh, climate change or some 
other type of ecosystem peril uh, in its commercial dimensions uh, is, is going to occur. And we need to be anticipating that, uh, preparing for that, uh, and creating a system in which we can deliberate even before those problems occur. A very good question. Yeah. Th th thank you, Jim. Uh, Inu, there, there are a couple of questions in here that are right up your alley in the sense that they are the subjects of the questions are areas that you have been studying recently. So I'm going to read you both questions and maybe you can choose what you might be able to answer in the next couple of minutes. Uh, from uh, Alfredo Carrillo, what prospects do you see for sustainability related negotiations that are yet to be concluded at the WTO, such as those on fishery subsidies and the environmental goods agreement? That's one question. The next one is from Srikar, who wants to who asks about special and differential treatment and the developing country issue. He says, on the issue of re-examining the developing country status, isn't comparing China with other developing countries a bit unfair considering that many developing countries are still addressing basic issues of underdevelopment, poverty, and sustenance? I think yours and Jim's paper addresses some of that. So take a stab at those, please. Right. Yeah. Great questions. And I would say that those two sort of go together uh, in a way when you look at the fisheries uh, subsidies negotiations, that is really a, a hard test case, not only of the WTO's negotiating function, but also the ability of developing country members to really sign up to the obligations uh, that are the highest level possible for them instead of using special and differential treatment as sort of an, an escape valve from, from meeting those commitments. Now, there are some major players that that essentially have uh, a bigger, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, enforcement, um, sorry, like a, a bigger impact on uh, the subsidies and, and they have more uh, than even some larger country members like the United States. So it's important to understand that all of these countries strike a balance uh, and, and meet these commitments. Now, China, when you look at it in comparison to other developing countries, I agree, is not entirely fair, but the one way to think about it is sector by sector, uh, where a country has uh, a more uh, a share of trade in a particular sector, it should have more higher obligations in those sectors. Uh, so that's a, a fair way to think about it rather than just saying for all developing countries, there is a blanket system for how we treat them. Uh, so therefore, we would have a more balanced system among developing countries uh, and not just one size fits all when it comes to negotiations. Uh, and I think that uh, getting through to fisheries is going to be incredibly important this year. Uh, the Negotiations were stalled mostly because they couldn't get them online. Uh, members struggled uh, to agree that that would be an effective way to conduct negotiations. But at the end of the day, if the WTO can't conduct negotiations online when it needs to, can't continue to engage, I think there's going to be some major problems for, for making this happen at the end of the year. Jim, did you want to add to that or do you want me to uh, maybe uh, add to that question? Actually, let me let me do that. Uh, it's, it's it's tangential to what Inu was just discussing. Uh, this is from Valerie Hughes, and she says, "I understand you don't want to comment on the individual nominees for director general, but are you surprised that there were not more candidates from developed countries? Does this signal some members not wanting to offend the United States?" I was surprised there were not more candidates from developed countries. Uh, one argument. Uh, in uh, the unwritten language of how these things are supposed to work is that it's the 
so-called turn of uh, developed countries to have a DG. I, I don't know that that notion need apply, but some people think that. So I was a bit surprised that uh, developed countries did not nominate any more candidates than we have. Um, Secretary Fox, of course, is from a developed country, um, one or two others. But um, the, um, the issue should not be, in my view, geography, nor should it be, in my view, gender. It, it, it should, in my view, be simple capability. Uh, the ability to do the job and the way it needs to be done this time of crisis for the WTO, I, I would say that we face an existential crisis in, in the WTO, uh, as, especially if uh, Donald Trump is reelected and especially if we're unable to curb uh, the economic impact of the um, pandemic sooner rather than later. Um, this is not a usual selection process. This is a, a very pivotal selection process. There's some very good candidates who've been nominated and they come from different places and they have different genders. But um, I think it's important to find the, the person who is best placed and best skilled uh, to uh, be the right kind of honest broker for truly transforming the WTO into the 21st century institution it needs to be, uh, irrespective of where they come from or what they look like or what their gender uh, may be. Thank you, Jim. Uh, one more question, and this, I'm going to direct this to Simon because Simon, you've written about uh, the Biden administration. Um, I, I, I was, uh, the, I think many of us have somehow expected that a Biden administration might be more uh, amicable, uh, more uh, ha have a more gentle tone toward the WTO. I'm not sure we've seen much indication of that, but uh, a question from Anonymous. Uh, I don't know if this is the same Anonymous as before. Uh, but Anonymous asks, what would one expect to have as a Biden administration policy toward the WTO? Have we have we seen any hints of that? Do you have any prognostications? I think what, what's going to happen is there's going to be an internal battle within the Biden administration. You know, I think we're seeing that with the campaign right now. We're having sort of the progressive forces and, and the centrist forces battle it out for what should be in these campaign statements. And I think that same battle will continue if Biden's elected president. And I, I don't know if we know who takes control, you know, who, who gets put in charge of trade policy. Is it the, the sort of the pro-trade centrists or more the, the, the trade skeptical uh, progressives? Um, I think that there will be strong incentives. There will be good reasons for the Biden administration to be less confrontational on WTO issues. There are some easy wins out there for them to take if they want to. Uh, so, so, for example, if they want to to continue that that battle with China on, on trade and economic issues, it would be nice to have some allies and they could get some back uh, by taking a more conciliatory approach uh, to, to various issues of the WTO, like 
uh, appointments to the appellate body, or like use or like invoking the national security exception for the Section Two Three Two tariff. So there there are wins there to be had, and if the the, the you know the with in the internal Biden you know team, if the the people who see that um, you know win the battle, then I think we'll, we'll go in that direction. But I you know I can't rule out that the 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 trade skeptical people will you know in sort of divvying up. Uh, Biden policy that the trade skeptical people, the WTO skeptical people will win. But I'm, I'm still hopeful. At this point, we don't know. So I can be hopeful and I can just be optimistic and say, yes, the Biden administration is going to be less confrontational about the WTO than the Trump administration has been. That won't say that won't solve all the problems, uh, but will be in a somewhat better position than they have been these these past than we have in these past couple of years. Excellent. And we'll, we'll let that be the last substantive word uh, for those of you in the audience who uh, stayed with us for uh, the extra eight minutes. Thank you for doing so. We, we started a little bit late, so we took the liberty of going a little bit longer. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we had a lot of questions come in. I apologize if I couldn't get to all of them. Uh, many of them were excellent. Some were similar in nature. Um, the video recording of this event will be available on Cato's webpage tomorrow. And please uh, tune into the Cato website to see what other events are, are coming in the near future. Thanks again for joining us and thanks to the panelists.